This episode of the Devin Kershaw Show is brought to you by Boulder Nordic Sport. Boulder Nordic Sport offers two full-service brick-and-mortar locations, one in Boulder, Colorado, the other in Portland, Maine. If that's too far for all your cross-country needs, you can check out Boulder Nordic Sport's full-fledged website for online orders and their how-to library. There you'll find how-to videos on glide waxing, kick wax and clister, and other handy topics to make your skiing experience better. BNS is also a go-to for hand-selected skis and stone grinds. You can find out more at bouldernordic.com. This is Jason Albert, and you are listening to The Devin Kershaw Show from Faster Skier. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Oyvind Sambach, Managing Director at the Center for Elite Sports Research at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology, NTNU, in Trondheim, Norway. Recently, Sambach was the lead investigator on a paper titled Preparing for the Nordic Skiing Events at the Beijing Olympics in 2022, Evidence-Based Recommendations and Unanswered Questions. For obvious reasons, the paper is relevant as it serves as a basic template for racing at the 2022 Beijing Olympics, where the race course is situated at roughly 1,700 meters. In a nutshell, the paper is a meta-analysis that prescribes best practices in terms of acclimatizing as a cross-country skier for what should be a taxing 2022 race venue. Even more, the scholars dig into how best to adjust for Beijing's time zone and expected cold, dry air. We'll link to the paper in the show notes. Okay, here's Kershaw, who's based in Lillehammer. We're getting into, well, it's midsummer, actually. It's a kind of like a Norwegian holiday today, or fake holiday today. Uh, yeah, I hope you have your giant fire happening in the backyard, or maybe that's coming later. Uh, Santans, but uh, we didn't do it with our two young kids, but... Anyway, we have uh, Ivan Sandbach with us on the podcast. As normal, it's very sporadic, especially in the non-competition months. Uh, we're really thrilled to have you. Thank you for being with us. Ivan is a pro- prolific university professor up in Trondheim, NTNU, the science and technology hub of Norway. And not only that, but he has an immense experience with Olympiatoppen, which is the Norwegian Olympic Committee and their programming, not to mention, as I mentioned, widely published, spoken on topics of exercise physiology, and also having a marriage between the, the science and the real world on the ground, boots on the ground, life and aspects of a top level athletes, not just in cross country skiing, but a number of endurance endeavors and not only endurance endeavors either so he's kind of a absolute expert we're thrilled to have you on the podcast thanks even for making the time with us today and today we're just going to talk about a paper that you published that was published in may and i'll let jason take it from here but it was really exciting paper especially for me uh an ex-athlete that has done a lot of altitude training in his day and a lot of different strategies and we've employed many different strategies altitude is a big part of our preparations and it's kind of a meta-analysis, um, a review of the research that has been published previously and trying to come up with some guidelines for, for teams or, or even those that are interested of what it means to compete in the Nordic sports at the Beijing Olympics, which are happening very shortly. So, Jason? Okay, so um, thanks for joining us, both Devin and 
Oh, and, and just as a non sequitur here, is this like a, a solstice type holiday in Norway? What is the holiday? It's not even a holiday here in Norway, but in Sweden, a couple of days ago, like summer solstice, they have this like midsummer it's called, and it's a party. It's like a big deal. Gotcha. They have like a, well, maybe not right now. Although with Tagnell, the epidemiologist over there probably is, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, no, it, normally normal non-corona times. It's uh, it's kind of like a, a big kind of big party. And here in Norway, maybe I even can chat a little bit about, it. I don't know more about it other than like you have this enormous bonfire and you know have kind of a barbecue and have some friends over and that sort of thing and again that's not really happening in uh the corona situation that's happening here in norway either but um so it's kind of like a, a it's not a holiday you still have to work but it's you get together with friends and have a giant bonfire yeah i think that's um, thanks thanks for hosting me by the way it's uh, it's very cool that um that people are interested in our research because uh, of course you at least for me i'm, I'm coming from the sport myself i I was an athlete. I tried to be as good as Devon, but uh, I didn't really achieve it. So, so after a few years, um, really trying at the senior level to reach the World Cup in in Norway, and uh, I can only do it uh, a few times in Holmenkollen and Drammen, and was thrown back to the Norwegian Cup again. Then I decided to quit and uh, and uh, try coaching. So I was coaching for a few years and uh, was lucky to to be allowed to work with Olympia Toppen, to be kind of working, still working with the, the Norwegian national team and both to do research and also to um, to work close with coaches and athletes. So for me, it's kind of an honor. Every time a coach and athlete is interesting, the research that I do, and then I I, I think that's uh, that's an honor. So then at least we do something relevant. So yeah, this, so is, and this is, yeah, you're welcome. And this is not just relevant, this is paramount of relevance for, Nordic enthusiasts and uh, the people that listen to this podcast are definitely that. Um, Beijing is at the upper limits of the FIS legal altitude limit, which is 1800 meters. It's at 1800 meters. And I know uh, cyclists, I know there's some cyclists that listen, like friends of mine of our 35 person listenership. Just kidding, Jason. <laughs> but uh, We're doing um, pretty well, actually. That- yeah, I know. I know. I just no, but you know, cy- cyclists love to to like bust my balls with this, especially with the altitude, because you know we we talk ad nauseum about what it means to 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 race at eighteen hundred meters and how hard it is for a cross country skier and how it's different. And and you know, road cyclists will be like, "You're crazy, man!" Like in Grand Tours when we're smashing up the Stelvio or going up the high passes of of the Alps this is nothing. This is an altitude at all. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of true. But this paper specifically um, addresses the demands of Nordic athletes for Beijing. And for people that don't know Beijing, the Olympics that are coming up next year, they're at right just over 1700 meters is the stadium around the stadium, uh, which is very high. And, And it's something that hasn't been competed at on the world cup level in quite many years now. It's something that I've competed at quite a bit in Soldier Hollow in the USA for, for people in the US that are listening, um, the Salt Lake City Olympic venue. That's right at the legal limit at around 1800 meters. You have some Alps, uh, not Alps, I guess. But yeah, Bormio is the Alps. So Santa Catarina, which is just outside of Bormio, that that had the World Cup finals a number of years ago. And that was at the that was right at the limit as well. And there's a couple other venues here and there. But a lot of the new athletes that are in the programs, like not the Teresa Yohags, not the Charlotte Kalas, not not these type of athletes that have been winning and and preparing and also racing at these venues I've mentioned, there's a 
there's a paradigm shift that always happens in sport. And that's why I'm exhausted and apparent and sitting here talking to you guys instead of smashing five hours of training a day now. Um, but these younger athletes, they just haven't had to do the altitude preparations or it just hasn't been ne as necessary since the championships have been at sea level. And there hasn't been world cups actually at high altitude for a number of years. And, and it'll be really interesting. So it's a fascinating debate. And, the, and there was some amazing knowledge in the paper i i loved reading i'm a huge dork but um and i mean just to just to start you off I, i'd like to you know this is a conventional wisdom thing for for us and the canadian team and especially like a lot of elite athletes and the world cup athletes in cross-country skiing would have heard about this but can you discuss a little bit it's mentioned quite a few times in your paper the importance of having 60 days exposure in a year or more if, if possible of course and the importance of that when a championship is at quote unquote high altitude or the fifth limit can can you just discuss um why that is important and and what you know give a synopsis maybe of, of the meta-analysis you and your team did yeah it's um it's quite interesting what you say because i i know um when i i have my wife is from switzerland and uh, she was also competing in world cup so and she was just laughing when we Norwegians talked about kind of the, the it was challenging to come to Davos, for example. Um, but uh, then she moved to Norway. Uh, I used to say it's due to me, but she says it was because she uh, liked Norway and she could combine studies with skiing. But um, but uh, then then she lived in Norway and she, she came back to Switzerland. And then she really realized that, oh, shit, this is a challenge. Uh, and I think that's what you... You comment on that now it's been low level uh, competitions mainly. Uh, they, you go up to Davos and then they acclimatize for five days. It's only 1500 meters. I think these last 250 altitude meters uh, might make a big difference because we haven't been there since Salt Lake City probably. Um, and then we know that athletes, at least those who have come from kind of lowland countries like Scandinavian countries, they those who succeeded in general had maybe up to 100 days at altitude in the years uh, before, like Turan Hetland, Bente Skarit, Ulana Bjørndalen. So, so I think it's um, it's quite interesting. Um, and and one of the reasons why we digged into this paper was that altitude in itself is complex. Uh, we know at lowland competitions you can you can win medals, you can break records without much. Uh, without any altitude training, uh, but you also can do it with altitude training. It's kind of, you have pros and cons. And maybe for some athletes, the bottlenecks in their physiological development will be better targeted by using systematic altitude training. Uh, maybe others can do it without, and maybe even throughout the career, it's kind of when you developed kind of well with altitude training, maybe you should prioritize less of that for lowland competitions um, later in your career. Uh, or the other way around. So it's kind of, this is a very interesting debate, but when you come up to kind of the Beijing uh, altitude, or at least uh, the venue of, of the Nordic events, uh, I think uh, at least what we see from practice, who has succeeded uh, systematically at these altitudes and what the literature shows from how you can acclimatize, uh, it's, it, it, you require time there. One is to be acclimatized, the other is, of course, to, to really have the experience of training, uh, competing, recovering, nutrition, kind of hydration, all these aspects 
And then, of course, pacing strategies, not only during competitions, but also during your kind of the training and in between competitions. And I, and I think one very interesting aspect is that, that people forget is actually that when you um, do your pre-camp, uh, then you travel to Beijing because you need also this, this um, time zone um, shift. Uh, and then you are at the Olympics. And if you then want to do the, the, the relay or the, the 30K or the 50K, then you've probably been up at altitude for four weeks, um, maybe longer, maybe more than, than four weeks. And, and then it's, it's not enough to be acclimatized. You need to be kind of know how to train and recover up there and to have that experience. And you, you shouldn't have to think about it every day. Kind of, what should I do now? Should I drink half a liter extra? Should I do a bit more proteins? It's kind of, this just needs, it should be kind of part of your daily routine. And I think these components are sometimes a bit underestimated. I also think that being at long training camps together will be beneficial at the Olympics because you need to spend a lot of time, long time with the camp. You need to be a good, have a good social kind of uh, be, a, be a good team uh, to have it good together, to enjoy it, uh, to have all the routines, to know what to do if kind of someone starts not functioning so well together. Uh, so, so I think, um, and of course, in addition, kind of you might have this blood effect that you see that the EPO, EPO response that might be beneficial, a little bit extra beneficial up at altitude. It, it, it's just so fascinating what you said. And I, I, I'm, I'm thrilled you said it actually, because sometimes, you know, and that's what you, I, I understand that you have, you know, that you have real world experience as an athlete and then also coaching and then also being very closely related to top level athletes here in Norway. So you, you kind of have the breadth of experience, but you do notice that sometimes, especially with, with, uh, with academics or even just coaches in general that don't understand the academic side whatsoever. And, and you have these disconnects. And I thought, I, th- I think like just to jump in and, important it is like the full and, and I'm kind of Jason's gonna roll his eyes at me because I'm evangelical about this this idea of energy management <laughs> energy management and especially the importance of energy management at a championship and yeah. now you're gonna have athletes on these teams that perhaps have not been to the Olympics or haven't been to, maybe they went once and then you have the stress of COVID and you and you see how that affects people differently we saw that last year we don't need to go all into it but but look at like Heidi Wang for example of Norway one of the best skiers in the world she really struggled before Christmas with so many question marks around COVID and it, of course it affects her performance of course and and so you have you know, it's kind of like a soup you have the time changes that are happening um, in your paper you also mentioned uh, colder temperatures and very low humidity which is very standard for a mountain environment and and nor not sorry sorry that was a Freudian slip I, I take it back cross-country skiing has a a, a exercise induced asthma epidemic that's happening right now and um we can leave that for another conversation but the fact of the matter is of course if you if you if you have damaged lungs or you're 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 an asthmat uh, well no one on the world cup is a true asthmatic in the medical sense of the word. But if you have exercise induced asthma uh, and you struggle, it, it, of course, it, it, you're also going to struggle there. So th- there's all these parameters that get mixed into this soup. And then th- it was awesome for you to yeah. say, because that's what we've struggled with, with that four week, you know, like the Olympics isn't just like the 16 day championship. No. It's like, you have to travel, you have to get adjusted. It takes forever to check in. You get all your clothes, how all this works. Then there's the fallout, how many races you're doing. And then there's the stress. Will I even get a start? 
what maybe you're just only picked for the 50k which is the last event and, and all these types of things so i think it was awesome that you mentioned that the importance of those long training camps might not just be the physiological benefit but also uh, adjusting to life on the road at high altitude period i think what you what you mentioned here is sometimes what at least Kind of, uh, if if you're too hung up with your own research or kind of of one one perspective on the problem, then then it's hard to kind of implement your your research uh, and get a good kind of dialogue about how you deal with it in practice. Because it's kind of like what you say in in Beijing. You you have the altitude exposure, but then you can't only plan for optimal kind of acclimatization camp because you need to travel to Beijing. You need one hour approximately for each each hour change when traveling east then you need to of course you can travel on a on an afternoon plane and then land in beijing when it's travel east so that that's that's better than the other way around but um i think um i think also you need kind of probably eight hours to adapt to uh then it probably we don't know that that's the important word we don't know it it, it might be <laughs> Be, be very cold so you need to be prepared for that you need to have trained for it you need to know the optimal clothing uh it's kind of you need to to kind of have that experience and suddenly there is still kind of some kind of covid uh, mutant that is ongoing so you have strong restrictions you can't do whatever you thought about um and then in the end you work with humans it's kind of it's humans who are on 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 the road for months and they're going to compete, and and then they don't know uh, about all these things. And then I think they need to be prepared. They need you need to make sure that they are secure. I think with altitude, you need to make sure that they need to go into that pre-camp and really be sure that and believe that this we know what to do. And then if things doesn't work as it should, you need to do the right adaptions to your training plan. Uh, you need to know, should I now, now go down for five days to recover or should I stay up here? I'm fe- uh, my throat is a bit sore. What should I do? Should I go down? Should I stay here? Should I kind of, you need to have a plan A, a plan B, a plan C. Um, and normally that takes quite a, quite some years with exposure to it. So that means we haven't had that exposure. At least they need to work very closely with experienced people. If they can be a little bit more evidence-based, um, so you kind of, yeah, you, you question your, your, uh, your choices a little bit less. I think that makes something to your, your head. And, and I think uh, we just need to realize that these are humans. Uh, like kind of when Heidi Wang struggled with COVID, uh, the most important thing then is to help her to take decisions that make her secure and, and uh, makes her life feel um, as good as possible. Um, and I think with all these kind of different moments that you have to, to take care of in order to succeed in, in Beijing, uh, that was kind of what I thought was interesting with the paper. What do we know? What do we know about the cold? What do we know about time zone acclimatization? What do we, what do we know about, about the altitude? What about the mix of all these? Oh, shit, maybe COVID. It comes to COVID mutant that we can't do it as optimal as we want. What do we do then? Uh, what is plan B? What is plan C? How do we deal with it? And then you compromise all these things. And then there's, there's humans standing in it called athletes who is actually having their emotions, their insecurity, and they should take choices. 
And then you have coaches who wants to help them to do the right choices. And it's not easy. Yeah, no, it's but it, you need it, to make it as the yeah. you need to make the choices easy, but it, it's kind of it's complex. You can have many nights without sleep thinking about what should I do now tomorrow? Yeah. And that no, doesn't it, help your performance. Because again, it comes back to that idea of energy management, which is just so paramount at the highest level of sport. And and you see that again and again. Everything costs. You know, I use an analogy with, with people I help with skiing, and but also like we talked about it on our teams. So it's not something I came up with myself, but like, you know, the, you, you think about it. So you have a full glass of water. And if that glass of water, you want to get to the race with as much water in that glass, of course you can party the night or like you can party two weeks before and make out with a bunch of four, women you don't know and probably get sick. So you're dumping a ton of water out and you know, you've made a mistake and you've like, I've thrown half the glass and I made, I'm going out, I'm partying. I'm acting uh, a little silly in a race season. I am actively throwing my energy water out, out, out of my glass. But you can also just like sit there and stress and your hand just shakes like, like you, no one can see this because it's a podcast. But you know, and you're just losing a tiny bit of water all the time. And in two weeks, maybe you're back at the same level. And, and these are all the things you're trying to balance, which is, which, is absolutely, which is absolutely fascinating. And because you're Norwegian and I know you don't have the, the exact, like you don't have, you're not in charge of this, this altitude protocols that are happening in these different teams. And I have a little in, different perspective because my wife is, was a Norwegian cross-country skier forever. And uh, we have friends still on both the men's and the women's team competing actively. So that's where I have this knowledge from, but, but, you know, could you talk a little bit how exciting and interesting from a fan perspective and maybe for the science, the men's team has decided to use this this period in these challenges like we've all mentioned already to go to Fort Ramieux which has a great roller ski track but it's right at around 1800 meters people that have been to Fort Ramieux in France it's it's a big giant plateau um yeah there are peaks not really peaks but the, you're in quote unquote the mountains whereas but it's hard to get up to like 2700 meters let's say right from Fort Ramieux it, it takes some work uh, whereas the so the men are are choosing this this strategy in their preparations uh, in this period. Now you're seeing the Swedish athletes at altitude. The Russians of course are at altitude and a number of other teams are at altitude. The Norwegians couldn't because of restrictions and, and changes within the team. So they had to drop that period, but men going right to race altitude and trying to get adaptation, understand pacing, that sort of thing. Women, Norwegian tried and true traditional altitude using size realm, which is over 2000 meters and, and abilities to do every run up to like 2,500 meters easily or 2,400 meters. And Lavinio, same thing. You, you're at 1,800 meters in Lavinio just over, but you have the ability to, to roller ski and run up to 2,500 meters easily. So two very different strategies, same quote-unquote team. Um, <clears throat> can you speak a little bit about the, the pros and cons of each of those strategies perhaps? Yeah, and it's, we wrote a little bit about it in a paper as well. It's kind of, if you, if you want kind of a, a good EPO response and, and have more kind of have the altitude effect uh, on, on blood, especially then you need kind of sufficient altitude. Uh, I would say 2000 meter and above uh, you need sufficient time. You should have three weeks probably to, to, to get it. And then, uh, then of course you, you adapt your training a little bit to, to that altitude. Um, so you avoid at least your internal intensity should not be too high too often. Um, 
so that that's a strategy that where you can, of course, at the end of the camp, you can do a few of these hard sessions as well. Maybe go down to kind of competition altitude and, and do the, the tough sessions. Uh, so you get kind of a mix of kind of trying to get the altitude effect, but also have some uh, specific sessions where you learn your pacing strategies and you learn how to compete and train hard at, at these altitudes. Um, so it's a combination, I would say. And then, uh, then I think uh, the other strategy you describe is more kind of, then you, you aim to do good acclimatization. So you are secure how to acclimatize at this specific altitude. And then in addition, um, having kind of like in Fontremeur where you have a roller ski track where you can train at your pacing strategies, you can test out different solutions and you can, can kind of be prepared for competitions and, and for kind of to be a, know how to acclimatize in a good way. But, um, but of course, the, I think there are pros and cons of both strategies. Uh, my feeling is, as I said in the beginning, is kind of to be prepared for being on altitude for a long enough time, I think is, is important. Uh, because it's not only to be acclimatized, you also stay there for quite some time. And you, you live there, you recover there, you kind of know, you should know how to eat and how to drink and how to get good sleep. And yeah, uh, that's, that's kind of, that might be the challenge with the second strategy that you maybe don't get enough exposure, uh, at least for those athletes who don't have it from before. Um, with the first strategy, you could say that you train and live a little bit higher normally than what you compete at, so you get less less of the specific uh, sessions. Um, so you still kind of probably need to go at least for the championships. You should probably if if you also do it there that you have kind of three weeks of altitude or two three weeks of altitude, then you go down to competition altitude. It has pros and cons. Um, so, so it's kind of, I, I don't know what is the best strategy. Yeah, uh, that's fun. <laughs> and that's what's fun with it. It's kind of, yeah. we've talked a lot, <clears throat> like we don't need to get all, I don't want to get into this uh, rabbit hole either, but you mentioned the paper also met, mentions uh, hyperbolic chambers or like altitude tents and, and altitude also training in, in uh, artificial yeah. altitude. And, and we don't need to get all into that. It's banned in Norway. So that's that for the power cross country skiing, it's well, banned. It's banned it? for this Olympics. I, I thought they amended that. Is it? It is banned. I thought they opened it up. No, the, the thing it's being discussed. It's being discussed right now. No, it's being discussed as we speak. Oh, I thought they actually passed it. It's it's actually no. It it's actually allowed now, but it will it not. Is? Yeah, it's um, okay. taking a decision that they will allow it, um, but not before. Kind of they want to have some routines for it and discuss what are the procedures, etc. So they will put together some kind of expert panel. Um, and then uh, then in October, or from October on, I think it will be be allowed. Okay. Um, so that's that's actually changed. So that was decided. But it's it will not probably not be they don't we don't have experience with it. So it will I will be surprised if anyone used it before the Beijing Olympics. It's too short time. You can't start with it in November. That's kind of probably a risk. So I can say my opinion on it. I think kind of, I think uh, one of the, 
if if I was a coach, I would have done altitude training naturally as my basic. It's kind of that would be my basic because then you can live there, you can recover there, you can train there. You have the nature, you have the camp effect, you have coaches around you, you have kind of it's kind of it's the whole package, which is kind of the trouble with research on altitude. You don't really know. There are very very few controlled randomized studies that actually control is it the altitude effect the nice nature the change in environment the change in training is it the high volume of training for example we did a study on cyclists and uh, going to to uh, mallorca uh, for three weeks and they get the same blood effect as you get in volsnales so it's kind of what is the effect is it the camp is it all the good food and and the, the positive uh, effect you get, or or is it altitude? I believe there is an altitude effect in addition um, myself, but we can't prove it. The controlled studies that I've done, they are probably not that strong and not on elite, really elite athletes. They haven't shown any effect. So so, but but I would have anyway gone down because I believe if you want to get that effect, you should kind of. Do, then you should at least learn how to race and compete and train at this altitude to recover, to sleep, to eat the whole package and be exposed 24 hours a day. If you kind of use some kind of tent, and so, it's very hard to get more than 15 hours exposure per day. Uh, you need to be indoors. It's kind of you lose that, we call it enriched environment. It's kind of, it's being social, it's being outdoors, it's being with people. It's that triggers your hormonal responses very positively. That makes allow you to, to get an EPO response as well, which is kind of an hormonal response. I, I used to say that people who don't believe in altitude never get an effect of it. Of pe- pe- people, people who don't like to be there or be away from family or whatever, they don't get an effect. And that's kind of something happening up here that triggers a hormonal response and you don't get the effect you should get. And I think it's the same with these altitude tents or rooms or <laughs> solutions that it's kind of, it might be possible to do better acclimatization that you're a little bit prepared. You can kind of combine it. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I haven't seen any research kind of proving the effect of it. Uh, so, so it's kind of, I would at least be very, very careful on testing such things directly before the Olympics. I would do the the real thing, full out, go up there, be there, live there, sleep there, and enjoy this nice environment uh, with your team. And then you get the camp effect, uh, being with the team for a long time in addition. And I'd rather be five days extra. Uh, and then, of course, there are other effects. This like they sprinting in... in um, hypoxic chamber and all these kind of things uh, that's that's a different story it's more probably related to other mechanisms but um yeah so it's that that's kind of where i am today but i'm a researcher so i'm open to see what happens in the future uh, if they get more knowledge but today uh, i can't really see the big benefits of it um to be honest and then i'm open to change my opinion <laughs> yeah. but uh, you, i mean just not that I'm playing devil's advocate, but it was interesting as I read through the paper, I actually was quite surprised because I was like, you had, you brought up, you know, the hyperbolic chambers or, you know, altitude homes. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, he's sort of bring, bringing this into play here in the paper where I had sort of thought over the last couple of years, and you just addressed this, that they were relatively ineffectual. And you mentioned, you know, yeah. a, a reasons as to why they may not have a positive impact in terms of making those adaptations compared to like living, you know, holistically at altitude. 
Um, you like yeah. my hand gestures. No one can see those. Um, but but what do you? I'm just curious. Like in an environment where you know, when I look look at the world map now, COVID is not you know stomped out. It's still around, and you know, winter. Uh, you know, anything can happen in terms of another blow up, travel restrictions. I don't want to play doom and gloom, but a lot of obviously a lot of countries have, you know, real money invested beyond just the social emotional investment of meddling or performing at the Olympics. What do you do if there are travel restrictions to Central Europe and, you know, an athlete can't go to Italy or uh, another location to train properly or get the exposure? Yeah, I do, not at the moment, I think. I haven't heard any discussions around it. And I, I think in, in any case, it's, of course, it will be hard to compete at your best if you kind of can't go to real altitude. And I think then I would rather move to a different country for a while. And you are allowed, you're in quarantine for some days. And then you, so I, I don't think it's kind of, in the real world, It's this is not a kind of, and I think you can't achieve the same effects kind of with this kind of way of manipulating a room or a tent or your bedroom or whatever. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's suboptimal in any way. So it's kind of, I don't say it doesn't, this has, I don't say that it hasn't any effect, but I, I just say it's suboptimal. Uh, uh, again, I'll come back to, we, we talk about humans uh, and humans, they, in Norway, we call it a 24-hour athlete. And that sometimes some people think that the 24-hour athlete, that you should think as an athlete and you should focus on your, your performance 24 hours a day. But it's the opposite. You should realize that this is, this is a person with emotions, with, uh, with uh, needs to develop other parts of life uh, that is kind of having struggles, having challenges, having breakups, having trouble sleeping, of financial it's kind of they are humans basically and kind of to put people in a sleeping room for 20 hours a day uh maybe a treadmill there so you can do your training there it's kind of uh, i don't think you get the same effects as in uh, in the nice in in Livigno or in uh, up in the nice mountains there but uh, that's that's my and i I agree with that for for sure. I've done both. I mean, I we've trained with hyperbolic chambers when I was young, a young senior. And it was like, I've been loving following this debate in Norway because like people want to use these things. And it's like, enjoy. Well, I mean, we did it as part of a research project, really. I mean, like there was physiologists that were checking on us every hour. We slept with pulse oximeters um, and, and we had alarms set on all, on all the devices and everything. So, and, and you're, it, it's noisy because you have like these alarms going off you have like a pulse oximeter we were sleeping with like they wanted to have it super exact so we had one on our finger and then a sensor on our, on our head with a headband it's stuffy you sleep so bad and then you go out and you do your training i lived in canmore for my entire career uh which is middle altitude kind of devos ish and 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 you're just like this <laughs> This is ridiculous. I mean, you're you're trying to get a tiny amount of of um, physiological blood response, and you're throwing so many other things out the window by like sleeping poorly, um, especially disrupted sleep. If you're trying to do upwards of 28 hours of training a week, 
at middle altitude. I mean, like, this is ridiculous. It's, it's, you're not getting those benefits. So, so we, we, as a team, like we, we went away from it and I was so thankful we ever did. I, I only did it for two years, but it was, I mean, I'm so thankful. I never had to sleep in an altitude uh, room again, ever. Uh, um, that, said, that, that's, that's been actually my arguments in kind of yeah. this discussion that is kind of, yeah. it costs too if much. It should, if it should be abandoned or not, that's kind of the ethics of it. It's not yeah. my kind of competence, but oh. I don't believe in it as, as a very beneficial tool. So no, and I had one other question with that, because then, then there was some research that came out that you, part of training in altitude is like you're changing, changing altitude. So like, as you train through altitude, there's the effect of pressure actually on all your capillaries, on, on your arteries, everything like your blood transport system in your body. And of course with an artificial altitude, simulation in an altitude room or anything that's not happening because while you're taking your your like your po2 is you're taking that out you're you're dropping those you're manipulating that the the, the on your body that's acting on your body there's no change it's it's not a pressurized environment like it is a pressurized environment but you're not getting that and i think that's something that that isn't it, it hasn't been discussed in norway on the media uh, these athletes that are really pushing for this. And I'm like, you know what, like you said to your, to, to much of what you said, like, we don't really know all the systems of why altitude works or doesn't work that sort of thing. And this idea of like the atmospheric pressure on you, on your, on your structure that you yeah. do not get in a hyperbolic chamber or an altitude in an artificial altitude. I, I think that is a debate that should yeah. be discussed and researched, especially in Norway. I, I think anyways, but th- yeah. I'm, I'm getting, to Nobody- I mean it. Like, I, I don't know. No, I I I I said that as um, uh, Norwegian Sports Federation had a seminar about this, and then I know a few coaches got angry at me, but I I posted a hypothesis where I said that um, I'm not going into saying an opinion about if it should be abandoned or not. That's kind of some ethical reasons for for doing that, moving the sport away from kind of kids' sport and youth sport, but. Um, but uh, my, my hypothesis is that the fact that it has been abandoned has been uh, a performance-enhancing factor in Norwegian sport because then we didn't waste time on that and we need to focus on the, the, the things that we really know works. And if you do altitude training, you do it kind of full-scale uh, optimally and not kind of in a suboptimal... You, you're, you're not allowed to use suboptimal uh, solutions. So that was kind of... I, I know a few people got a bit... Um, frustrated of me saying it because they wanted to test it out but um I it could be used cool. as an argument for keeping the abandonment but uh yeah i i, I still i still have that hypothesis yeah i i agree with it i mean i, I having having experienced both and uh, it is there's no question in my mind but uh yeah, yeah. but we'll continue because I, I i find it really fascinating i i, I really do and I, I think it's cool that we discussed and i think it's fun that the norwegian which is just a powerhouse and, and especially the men's skiing i mean in in my active days you know there would be one or maybe two norwegians in the top 10 in the overall world cup and now there's nine or eight in everything and i think it'll be interesting i mean I don't want to be with the Olympics coming back to the Olympics and how the men and the women of the Norwegian team are, are choosing different altitude strategies. I think it's going to be awesome to follow along one thing. And then I, I want to leave it all. What makes it also exciting. And we touched upon this a little bit is that like I even said, and it is true, like smaller nations or, or some nation, Russia, for example, like the Olympics looms large. So they, they put like a lot of emphasis and, and 
and and they want to get it right for the Olympics. So the the Norwegians are under that under that pressure, especially on the men's team. The quotas have changed. There's only eight men now that you can name to your team in Norway, which is vastly reduced than it was two Olympics ago. And and that means the competition is very fierce just to be named to the team. And so they're under immense pressure from right from the word go, right from Bidestolen to get these chances to even make the Olympics. So you're, you're asking athletes to be at their like highest level all year long. Then you have this altitude piece in that like not everyone is having the same opportunities to, to have this optimal altitude preparation with athletes that are, have been named to the Olympic team one year in advance, let's say kind of thing like Jakob Ingebrigtsen knows he's going to the Olympics for a year before the Olympics happen. So you can set, you can set up his, his uh, push for the 1500 meter very differently than someone like Paul Goldberg or, or, you know, someone that's been left off the team, like take, take Finn Hagen Crow or with the skate sprinted altitude that that suits him really well, but he's off the team. So who knows what he's doing? And, and Finn, uh, sorry, like did a concept, same kind of thing. So it's going to be really exciting to follow along. And I, I also think it's going to be fun to see if, if these other nations can do it. And I, I want to just be naive and think that there's no doping happening, but I was a fan in 2002 I was in the stands watching Johan Mulek absolute make a mockery of, of the competition. And yeah, he did altitude training and he was prepared for altitude, but he also was fully doped and won all those gold medals for a, a week or so before they took them away. And, and I'm, so I'm going to leave that aside and, and, and hope that, you know, sports cleaned itself up and, and that sort of stuff. But of course we do know that, you know, we're talking about people going to altitude to change their, their natural blood values to have a better oxygen carrying capacity or a better oxygen extraction strategy or capabilities to compete at these altitudes. And, uh, yeah, I guess I, I'm, I'm not losing my train of thought, but I just don't want to wade into the doping thing. But I, what I do, what I am interested in is Sweden is in altitude. Now they're in Ting, uh, skiing up on the glacier. The Slovenians have been on, uh, up in Dachstein, which could be argued isn't really altitude because if you're living uh, in Ramsau and then just up at, 2,800 meters for two, three hours. There's not really that big of an effect, but, but anyway, you have all these teams. Russia has been, been doing altitude camps. Norway hasn't been able to do it now. And when they do, they'll be doing two different strategies. I, it just, it makes, it's, it's kind of fun for a fan, you know, and you're a researcher and I'm a dorky fan. It, it's, it's, it's really fun to see all this stuff mixing together and, and, and seeing, and, and, and seeing how it's going to play out. And I, I think, and I think your paper has just highlighted a, a lot of, real challenges specifically to Beijing. And I think a lot of teams uh, leadership in these smaller teams in, in an era where big powerhouses of the past in men's skiing, like Italy or Germany or well, specifically Italy and Germany and uh, Sweden uh, are just a shadow of their old self. I hope they read it and hope they take it to heart and try and like control the variables they can, because I would love to see a competition on the men's side at the Olympics this year. And I, I'm with you. I think, I think we will see that, which is, which would be nice to see because uh, I love Oberstdorf. Uh, you know, uh, it's a great, it's a great venue. I love the world championships, but Oh my God, on the men's side of things, like it was some beautiful skiing and oof, we can't have too many more championships like that. If we want to survive as a sport internationally, I feel. I agree. But I think I think actually it will be very exciting this year because um, because uh, from the Norwegian side it's been kind of it's been amazing results. It should be it should be possible basically. And I think you you mentioned a few. It's kind of been extremely good skis, and uh, I think the 
technicians have done a fantastic job at these events. Uh, I'm not so sure it will be such big differences up at uh, Beijing, and I, I, nobody has been there to kind of you, you don't have any any um, kind of you haven't done anything before because uh, you couldn't test the venue, you couldn't test that type of snow, and it will be artificial snow. It will be in some kind of desert, and it will be very um probably not so clean snow and it will be very cold so it's kind of you don't know who kind of is able to 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 manage that best um so that's one thing uh and the other thing is of course that uh, that uh, norwegians will have kind of limited altitude uh training especially on the men's side it's they don't have so much exposure so they need to use the time very well uh in front of the olympics from kind of september to February will be very important. And uh, so that will be interesting to see. Um, they don't have a benefit of that, that we can say. And then yeah. we, they didn't just need to reduce the disadvantage uh, as good as possible. Uh, and then I think one factor that will be be, um, be very interesting in, in my opinion is how kind of when you have eight men on the team and then you have four on each distance. Last year kind of Krieger couldn't kind of compete in distances that he kind of won the year some years before it's kind of it's kind of it's quite it's quite tough competition so you need to be a top shape at uh by Tostelen you need to compete extremely well until the end of Davos uh and then you probably need some good competitions to be kind of not only in the eight man team but in the top four for each distance so it's kind of and as we saw this year, that for, I think Norwegians had a benefit of training home quite a lot due to COVID restrictions, because they could really prepare for the World Championships and do a good training, kind of, and not only compete, compete and travel and have reduced training loads. They could really have a good training load. And then that will be probably beneficial for some of the teams who don't have that tough competition. You can really do some races as part of your training and maybe... They're not optimal, but you have optimal preparation for the Olympics. So this is, you see it for sometimes in, in Kenya and USA uh, as well, preparing in athletics. Um, that uh, that some of that, they need to be so well prepared in order to compete that it might limit a bit their performance in the championships. So Yeah, yeah, and it is that, that's so fascinating because US, US, I'm a track and field nut and like the US championships are happening right now. And I mean, the US trials in track and field is like, that is like bite is stolen on steroids to the, on every drug known to man. It's just like such high stakes, high pressure. Um, but the funny thing is, because, you know, my, my wife and I, Kristen, we were talking about this actually a couple of days ago. It, it's a double-edged sword there too. And that's what's so cool about high level sport. It's like, you probably are at your best for U.S. trials in a sense compared to the Olympics in a month later. But if you succeed at the U.S. trials in events that U.S. is always good, so let's say the 400 meters, for example, for men, if, if you make the U.S. team for the 400 meters, maybe you're not right at your razor-sharp peak when the Olympics comes along, but mentally you're like, if I make the team for the U S and the 400, I'm going to win. Even if you were third in that 400 meter in the U S trials, it's like, and, and Kristen's the same. I mean, Kristen had that experience often. And a lot of those guys have that experience often trying to make that relay team, especially for Norway, which is so competitive. And it's like, <clears throat> we're just trying to make the championship and you're trying to make the championship. But if you're one of those eight men picked for the Norwegian team for the Olympics in Beijing, 
you're going there knowing it's like, I'm going to metal, baby. Like that's, and, and, and that gives you a boost. I, that's why I think it's just so fun. And it's, I, I agree. it's great that I agree. Beijing chucked in this, like this, this weird venue, this like artificial venue that no one's seen. And then there's been a pandemic and it's at 1700 meters and, and <clears throat> new people. And so for, for a fan, it, it's got all the makings of, of, a. a, a yeah, it's a show. It's a spectacle, really. And um, but I really hope that the athletes do do nail it. And and like I said, I, I'm repeating myself a little bit, but I I hope and I I if there's any uh, coaches of smaller teams <laughs> internationally that are listening to this, like give 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 the article a, a real read and and give it to your physiologist as well, and and take some time with this because these kind of things make a difference. And I've noticed that with my my career too in a big way. I mean, we, we've done a whole bunch of different altitude strategies. We've, we've done traditional altitude strategies. Like I said, I've used, uh, altitude, uh, pressurized rooms that we slept in. Uh, I've also, we've done a lot of like what we call like yo-yo training. So you're changing your altitude all the time. Do so you sleep like three nights up high and then come down for two nights and then three nights up high and then try and train from sea level up to where you sleep at around 2,500 meters kind of thing to try and get that maximize that, uh, that pressurized that, that, uh, atmospheric pressure stress on the system as well It's uh, all these kind of things. And then, and, and in the end, it's kind of funny. It's like what worked the best, what didn't work the best, who knows, maybe you had the best training camp, you know, the best blood values we've ever had uh, hemoglobin mass, for example, which is really important for, for if you're trying to follow along with this stuff at the, at the this, we're talking like world cup teams now, but, but the, the best team blood values we've ever had in our entire, my whole career was when we had a training camp in Hawaii, seriously. And, and we, we did yo-yo training in Hawaii where we would sleep some nights at zero and nights at 2,300 meters up on Haleakala. But, you know, now this is a big thing in Norway too. And I know you've uh, for sure heard a lot about this, but like this heat training, you can get the same blood values with training in high heat. Uh, than you can at altitude. Well, Hawaii is kind of like the perfect storm, I guess, because it's plus 30, it's humid, and you're training from zero up to 3000 meters, and you're staying up high, but like, but it was also the most fun camp we've ever had in our life. Like, we're in Hawaii, for God's sakes, roller skiing in Haleakala, like it's, it's just bonkers. So, so to your point, like, what is the variable that worked? Was it the heat? Was it this yo-yo strategy of, of change your altitude all the time? Uh, was it just the altitude exposures we had? Those camps were long. Um, was it that we had the best time ever and we, we weren't stressed about all the other things because we just had a great setup and we were having so much fun and on a rest day we could go surfing or snorkeling or whatever? Like, who knows? And that's what, that's what makes this so fascinating. And that's what makes your job both interesting, but also must be like at times a little frustrating be like, how do we test this? Like, how would you test the Hawaii camp? Like, I mean, it's almost like beyond the realm. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's great. Oh, but it's, this, this is exactly what I said. And then in addition, you work with humans, not machines. Yeah, so, exactly. And they respond differently. They have different bottlenecks, kind of that should be targeted. And uh, you have different kind of heads, you different yeah. mindsets and, you like different things. So, so it's kind of, that, but that's probably the, the fun thing about being a coach that you actually, you don't have any, the answer. It's not the truth uh, that you have there. You just need to find good compromises that fits each individual athlete as good as possible. And um, 
I think I think that's the beauty of it, and especially when you come to Beijing now, it's kind of it will be will it, it's a lot of different factors that should be mixed together, and uh, you need to make it, uh, as optimal preparation as possible for each athlete. But then, of course, you also need to bring the team together. So it's kind of you need a team effect, and you need individualized stuff, and you should make as many of the medalists. Uh, possible medalists uh, as secure as possible in their strategies. So, of yeah, course, and I, and I think I, I agree with you. I, I, of course, chair the Norwegians and I try to help them as good as possible. But I, th- I think it will be close. It, it's kind of I don't think you will see the same results as last year in the World Championships. Then I will be surprised. I think um, I think we should be uh, really happy for each medal we win. Um, you shouldn't take any for granted, but because this will be a big challenge. And I'll take the I'll take the contrarian uh, viewpoint just so that we can have something to touch on after the Olympics. Like from what I've seen, like there's the, I mean, I understand, like I understand all the the challenges for sure that you're saying, but like Norwegian men's skiing is just, just like, like you said, it's just it's like it's it's almost. I don't want to say it's almost unbelievable because it's not, I know the guys really well and I know what they do and, and I, I understand like the systems, but it's, it's the biggest beat down maybe since uh, the mid nineties for Norway in classic skiing at that time, let's say back when you had the Norwegian dominance in the nineties in, in specifically in classic, um, you know, we, ha- we haven't seen dominance in cross country men's cross country skiing to this level so so i'm gonna think that they're still gonna crush everybody and that's gonna be a bummer but i i kind of hope they don't every single time no offense boys you know i love you guys but like uh just to make it a little bit more exciting but it, it makes for a great conversation and i i i really appreciate you taking the time and and, and chatting with us about yeah, it's really talks. cool and I, and I also hope it's kind of uh i think uh, i talked to vega rulvang uh, a while ago so i'm I've, uh, I, uh, we, we talked about putting this uh, article also out on the FIS web pages because it's it's kind of it, that's I think kind of Norway is uh, a very small nation, but in cross country skiing we are kind of big brother, um, and we should kind of help our uh, our uh, our friends in other nations as well who doesn't have so many researchers or so much researchers and resources and <laughs> and skiers, but it's kind of that's a bit also. Nice, I think, to share this paper uh, in good time before the Olympics. So, also a bit smaller nations could at least have the same knowledge. Because uh, if we talk about fairness in sport, I think you touch upon doping, uh, which is kind of yeah. If if I if I if I believe that uh, any of the Norwegians were doped, I would not spend one minute more on this. this type of research, then I want to go into health research or something like that. But I think the beauty of it is that I really believe that it's possible to win in this sport by doing it kind of in a, in a good way uh, in, and in the fair way. But then again, knowledge is also kind of, it should be also, that's why we publish internationally and we share knowledge. I think the coaches, they of course can utilize the knowledge and we should respect and not kind of share their kind of secrets in, in uh, the, the, the little magic they do with their athletes. But the big knowledge that we do from research should be shared internationally because that's also about fairness in sport, I think. The yeah. same as kind of you should fair play, similar knowledge. And then, of course, you have the big issue that it will never be really fair is kind of the equipment part of it, uh, which is 
which is a challenging part, I think, for FIS to handle. Um, yeah, but that's something that they need to. You know, I, I was it's funny, I was talking with some friends about that the other day in, in skiing and, and and yeah, like that's a huge challenge for FIS, and I'm not sure how or if they can you know, right now we're going the way of F1, essentially, <laughs> like, you know, like good luck beating or, or McLaren, you know, like it, good luck if you're a small F1 team. Uh, that's kind of what it is in, in cross-country skiing as well from uh, at the moment. Um, but, but I agree with you. And, and, and I, I want to repeat your point. And, and I mean, and not, not to, because those that are following the Olympics, uh, there is a cloud of doping around everything. But I agree with you 100%. If, if any Norwegian that I am good friends with and, got caught with EPO or something like, I don't even know if I cross country ski again. I love cross country skiing. Like I, 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 it would destroy me. And as a Canadian, I've seen Canadians win clean and, and beat these powerhouse teams like Norway, not like once in a while though. And, and, and on big stages, you know, like seeing Alex win the, the world championships in 2017. And of course, like <clears throat> Chandra Crawford winning the Olympic games in 2006 in the sprint and not just by a bit, but like crushing everyone at 22 years old, you know, she, she was my girlfriend at the time. And like, she is clean hundred percent and she, she proved she could do it. What a beautiful sport we have in cross country skiing that. But I think, you, I think you touch upon something really important because uh, that's kind of what I, what I, I tried to say when I also talk internationally about this is kind of, because you often get the question, how is it possible for Norway to be so good in endurance sports and especially skiing if, if you don't dope? That, that's a typical question you get. Oh, and, uh, and then I say, of course, we win a lot of our medals in sports where we have kind of the climatic uh, conditions. But then don't forget kind of the, the biggest uh, cities. If you look at Oslo and Trondheim in Norway, we have skiing conditions just around the corner. So, so half... And, and, and more than half of our populations have skiing tracks just 10 minutes from the house door. Uh, and then this has another effect. It's kind of uh, the politici- our politicians are skiing. The media people are skiing. Yeah. So you, you see cross-country skiing in the media. It's kind of uh, the politicians are skiing and they put a lot of funding so you can build uh, ski tracks and artificial snow. And it's kind of you put this around Norway so you allow people to ski. And it has status to ski. So we recruit a lot of skiers. Most probably Russia, Norway have kind of maybe a similar amount of skiers. But it's not only the amount of skiers you get. The biggest talents, if you're good yeah, in exactly. skiing and hockey, you exactly. choose to ski. Exactly. And that doesn't happen exactly. in any other nation. So you have exactly. good recruitment and you get the exactly. big talents to yeah. It's kind of like Marit Björg and Teresa Juhagvist. Of course, exactly. they're trained well, but they have some unique in them. Yeah, exactly. And that's what's awesome because like, this is what I explained too with, with Canada in hockey. The best male athletes, most, choose hockey. Why? Yeah. We have a great hockey. Canada is an amazingly run program. There is every small town has multiple hockey arenas. The people that are coaching, like my hockey coach when I was 12, he was drafted in the NHL. Think about that. You know, like, so the knowledge sharing is, is you have like the best athletes are going into hockey and in Norway, the best athletes <clears throat> are going into Nordic skiing, it, like athletes. I'm saying like general a- athletic ability. So it, so it is a fascinating, yeah, no, it's fascinating. And then the variables, that's what I love about skiing. And, that, and I think, so I think the last, last point for me is actually also kind of, I know endurance sports best, but I think one of the beauties of the nations, not only Norway, but all the nations that are quite good in, in athlete development, it's kind of the without doping. 
that where you know that this is not a nation where you systematically yeah. dope athletes, but they still achieve amazing results in different sports. Uh, I think that it's kind of, I'm back to this kind of 24-hour athlete. It's kind of, it's a holistic perspective on, on athlete development. You take care of a human who wants to take out their potential in the sport. And there is not this big hierarchy that the coach just tells the athletes what to do and give them a program. It's, it's this fine-tuning of training where you kind of, you adapt the training. You Oh, you don't look really good today. I can see it in your eyes. Maybe you need a day off. And you have that dialogue. You have a little bit more level relationship. And, and you can take fine-tune the training so that you can take out that small potential uh, uh, that you don't get from giving a person a training program and testing them in the lab. So I think it's kind of, it's something with that way of working, using the basic principles. It's nothing spectacular about the basic training principles, but utilizing them as optimal as possible, matching them to each individual athlete, and then working closely to optimize that in, in kind of, and also allowing the athlete or learning up the athletes to know their body and take those small small decisions that uh, a coach is not able to take because they're not living, they're not sleeping normally, at least not sleeping in the same bed. Hopefully, uh, not, hopefully <laughs> not in this day and age. I hope to God not. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's like, kind of, I think this, this is kind of the combination in skiing where you have kind of these, all these talents, they choose to ski and you have that type of culture in athlete development is, is kind of what I think is kind of, the secret and you have that in other nations as well uh successful nations but i think you can achieve a lot of the effect that you can get from doping by using that approach because yeah. then you stimulate the brain you regulate the training so the endocrine response is as optimal as possible you you mix the training you you puzzle your training together in the optimal way for each individual athlete and then you you achieve kind of a balance in your your nerve Kind of your your autonomic ner nervous system is responding as optimal as possible. The endocrine responses is as optimal as possible, and you fine tune this uh, so you achieve not the optimal training program, but the optimal output of your training. And I think I think that's that's yeah. that's the beauty I think uh, about sport. How can you puzzle this together for 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 each athlete as as good as possible? Yeah. And I, I think like, I, I agree. And I, you know, I'm studying physiotherapy. I studied physiotherapy this year. Uh, and, you know, like a big part of something we, we learned is like, just the theory is like self-determination theory. If you, if you think it's like, if you just think about it, it's like expertise or knowledge, a supportive environment and autonomy, that's essentially what you're saying. But like, it, it's so simple, but it's so hard to do system wide and at every club and at every level to like, like nurture that, like that supportive culture piece or, or that expertise piece. And it, it's not enough to have two out of the three. You have to have autonomy, much to what you're saying. And then you also, so when you have that working holistically, as you say, you also need this umbrella of like, do you actually have the basic, but those basic principles are only basic for someone, not just someone like you as a professor that does that like on lockdown, but I mean like in a culture where like this is, this is the basic knowledge. I mean, if I pluck a kid out of NTG, who's in their last year of uh, Vidragorna here in Norway, uh, you know, they're learning that in school. But like if I plucked a grade 12 kid 
in Bend, Oregon, Jason, and, and, and who likes sports and, you know, they haven't got that training. So it's, it's anyway, it's, it's a fascinating and a never ending conversation, but uh, it's been absolutely yeah. amazing to, to have you with us. And I think we had a wonderful, wonderful discussion. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. And this much is true in the Northern hemisphere. Although the heat is now upon us, the daylight hours are shortening. 